0: Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast at the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Isabel O'Hare about her book, All This Can Be Yours. Isabel is a poet and essayist who has dual Irish and American citizenship. She is the author of the chapbooks Wild Materials from Zoo Cake Press in 2015, The Garden Inside Her from Lady Box Books in 2016, and Heartbreak Machinery forthcoming from Dancing Girl Press in 2019. Her collection of erasures of Celebrity Sexual Assault Apologies, All This Can Be Yours, is now available from University of Hell Press. And she is currently editing an anthology of erasure poetry called Erase the Patriarchy, due out from University of Hell Press in 2019. Isabel earned an MFA in poetry from Vermont College of Fine Arts and has been the recipient of awards from Split This Rock and the Helen Wollertzer Foundation of New Mexico. Her work has been reviewed in Harper's Magazine, Vice, Fast Company, The Irish Times, AV Club, and many other publications. Isabel also co-edits the journal and small press dream pop with poet Carlene Tibbets. Hi, Isabel. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My great pleasure. (laughs) Um, To kick things off, I'd like to know how you started to first engage with poetry, both as a reader and as a writer.
1: Oh, gosh. It's actually kind of embarrassing. Um, (laughs) I, let's see, it was sort of an early influence of my father. He got me really into like Emily Dickinson and um, Dylan Thomas. And then, but I didn't really get into poetry as a writer until I was probably about 13. Um, I had always written short stories and sort of little plays that I put on with my friends um, that I would kind of like force my neighbors to part, play parts in. Um, and yeah, I, it's actually funny. The, the poet who kind of got me into poetry is uh, Charles Bukowski. which is really funny to say to people now, (laughs) Um, especially considering the kind of poetry that I write and what my sort of politics are these days. Um, Yeah. So thank you, Charles Bukowski for, (laughs) for getting me into poetry. Can't say I'm a
0: huge fan now, but. (laughs) Well, um, so it that is always interesting, how huh? the sort of things that sort of influence us when we were younger. And so as you like as you started moving into writing more poetry, like how did you evolve as a poet and how did like your influences and who you read change?
1: Oh uh, I guess through Honestly, I was, like, a Bukowski fangirl for a really long time. It's so embarrassing even just remembering this on my own. But um, I read, like, everything he'd ever written, and I had a huge collection of, like, the original Black Sparrow Press editions of his books, and it was ridiculous. Um, They were eventually all destroyed in a flood, (laughs) which was (laughs) probably, like, a sign. But... um, I probably, you know, I, I remember talking with people in my early 20s about poetry and talking about Bukowski a lot. And people kept suggesting to me, like, why don't you read these other people? And so through the gentle nudging of um, other writers and readers of poetry, I branched out. And um, but again, like the branching out really at that point was more like other white men, like the you know the western canon of of poets, and so I probably didn't really branch out that much until I got to college and um I went to college late uh later than most people do, and got exposed to a lot more, and then especially in my m f a program um, I had an advisor who sort of saw the list of poets that I had written down um, of, you know, the people that I had read and enjoyed. And, and he was like, this is like a bunch of white people. And so, (laughs) and so he gave me a list of um, contemporary people of color and people from other countries. And, and so that really opened up a lot for me. Um, I also started getting into erasure poetry um, in my MFA program as well through working with, um, I, I had workshops with Jody Gladding, Jen Bourbon, um, who has written a number of erasure books, um, like Nets, which is, uh, erasures of Shakespearean sonnets, um, and Mary Rufel also taught there. And I never worked with her, but I interacted with her on numerous occasions. And I was familiar with her work before I went there. And so um, we talked about her work a lot. And she did A Little White Shadow, which is a beautiful little book of uh, white-out erasures. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so sweet. Um, yeah. So I I read work from people who were teaching in my program, um, who were erasure poets. And then we did a bunch of erasures in a couple of my workshops that I took. And then I just, I got so into it. And actually my thesis, the creative thesis that I had to do for my MFA was an erasure, a book length erasure of Robert Duncan's, um, the opening of the field. And so I erased that entire book into uh, a book called Hinge. And for me, that was like an exploration, not just in erasure poetry, but also in how to converse with someone else's work through erasure. And um, it really kind of taught me a lot about different kinds of writing and um, different approaches to poetry because... Robert Duncan has this very um, esoteric, like lush, expansive language. And that is like a total joy to read. And I felt a little weird erasing it, but um, I, I did a different kind of erasure with that where I didn't totally black out his words. I just grayed them out. So they're still there and you can still see his amazing language it was interesting for me to see how concise mine was in comparison. And I, I felt like a little jealous, you know, like, (laughs) I wish I could like write these like amazingly beautiful, expansive sort of um, like landscape poems uh, that he does. And, and so, yeah, I guess I just, I learned through um, exploring work with other people in community and uh, conversing with other people's work as well,
0: largely in academic environments. That's awesome. <clears throat> so, um, that's awesome. I um, So speaking of erasure poetry and, and for, for those people who may not know what erasures are, I think it's fairly common knowledge now, but maybe like give a, a brief description of what it is and, and, maybe what like draws you to that specific specific form and what that form can do that other forms maybe cannot.
1: Wow, that's such a huge question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so erasure poetry for me started out as a really magical, playful sort of lighthearted exercise to jog the brain and um, to sort of get me thinking differently. Um, And it also started out, like I said, as a conversation with someone else's work and sort of a reverent one. So, you know, approaching someone's work with great respect um, and the desire to bring something out of it that might be hidden beneath the surface. And so there are lots of different methods of of doing that. You can, um, I've used whiteout in past erasures and I've done blackout with Sharpie. Um, I've also experimented with cutting words out. And so the idea is that you're removing something or you're, um, or you're, or you're not removing something. Jen Bervin had a really interesting term for it. I can't remember what it was, if it was, um, Something like restitution, or i'm I'm totally making this up, I think, but I know she had an interesting word for what you're doing with erasure, which is not necessarily removing something, but you could be bringing something forward and um so that it's not always you know you sort of violently attacking someone else's work but um which it can feel like sometimes, but you're actually kind of allowing things to sort of bubble up to the surface that may not have been obviously apparent before.
0: I think that's a lovely description of, uh, of of what erasure poetry can do uh, in terms of bringing stuff forward as much as taking away. Exactly.
1: And I think, cause yeah, there are, I think that the, the label for it can change depending on the context of the erasure. So um you know, like the the blackout poems that I've done look very much like redacted government documents. <laughs> and so, like, you could call those redaction because the intent there is very different from the intention that I've had with previous erasures, where with Robert Duncan, I'm reverently conversing with his work and trying to meet with him, you know, in the work, um, and in the erasures in all this can be yours, I was really angry (laughs) and I wanted to, it was a very like rage, um, induced cathartic exercise that I've never done before. It was a totally new feeling, um, that was pretty uncomfortable, uh, and that I didn't really want to keep doing for very long, which is why I haven't really made any for a year. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very different. Like that one's definitely an erasure, you know, it's me removing things that I found offensive and that I found dishonest and bringing what I thought was the reality behind the statements that were so full of PR damage control language, which I found, yeah, I found offensive and that needed to be removed. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, on I, I definitely see the 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 how it's clearly an erasure in that case. Um, but I also see the the lifting up in the sense of like you are trying or were trying to bring out of of what's hidden behind all the, the BS, the what's kind of said underneath it all. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of um, all this can be yours and and that collection, um, you you mentioned that you were angry about it, but like, like how did you kind of start to begin that project? And did you even know that it would kind of turn into this larger product project when you started?
1: I had no idea. And the story is kind of funny. I was living with um, a friend of mine at the time who is an artist in Taos. I, I bring him up like in a lot of interviews about the book because he was just so integral to the whole process. And uh, his name is Joel Larson and he's uh, very like eclectic artist, um, does a whole lot of different kinds of things. And he's a really creative dynamic person. And I was his roommate and we were just, we would watch these reports together of men coming forward with these apology statements and we would talk about it. And um, I had had the idea one day to erase them. And it was just kind of a sort of fleeting thought like, Oh, that might be fun. And I didn't do it for a couple of days. And then I was sitting in the living room with Joel and Joel said, someone needs to make a book of these statements. Like they need to be compiled somewhere so that everyone can read them all together. Because we kept noticing that the language is very much the same. It was like, they'd hired the same PR team to say the same thing over and over again. And, uh, and so I said, you know, I've been thinking about making erasure poems out of them. So maybe I should just do that. And so he found this stockpile of Sharpies Um, that he'd had for artistic purposes. And then we pulled out the printer and we kind of created this whole little workstation in the living room um, where I could just sit there and I would print out statement after statement. And I sat there for hours uh, the first day erasing them. And I think in the first day I made like 20. Um, Yeah, and a lot of them were because I, I did a total of 17 erasures of Louis C.K.'s statement. And so I think I just, the, a large proportion of the ones that I made in the first day were just different versions of Louis C.K.'s statement. And then I, I also on that day did um, Kevin Spacey and I think um, George Take. And so I just kind of made them all, um, made a, a big chunk of them, in one sitting of several hours in the living room and then over the next few days I made a whole lot more And I started posting them on, you know, Instagram and Facebook. And even at that point, like after my friend had said that they should, that the statements themselves should be compiled into a book, it didn't really occur to me that I was making a book. I was just like, I'm just really pissed off right now. And like, this makes me feel a little bit better. And so, and I thought, you know, it might speak to some other people um, on my friends list and, so i posted them and i was really really shocked um that they got as much attention as they did i was, was like so not expecting that or even remotely intending that and uh um and then it just became kind of obvious after i think a week of them circulating that it should be a book um That making as many of them as I needed to to put a book together would be a good idea, and so I did that. And so the ones that I I feel like I I made more as time went on, and more statements came out. And then people like Lena Dunham made statements uh, defending men, and so then it kind of morphed into erasing statements in defense of. these apology, uh, statements and like, like Morrissey made one in defense of Kevin Spacey. And so I erased him. And, um, but the, the later ones I felt like kind of, um, lacked the initial urgency. And I felt like over time it was less of a cathartic exercise for me. And it felt like, um, I was, Sort of trying to manufacture like the initial right. feeling, you know what I mean? Of, of like, like why I was doing this in the first place. And so I, I when I reached about 75 uh, erasures, I decided, okay, this is good enough. And I don't, I don't really need to like force myself to make anymore. And so I just ended it at that point and then started working on putting the book together. And um, University of Hell, Actually, they've always been a press that I really admired and I I love their books. And uh, I'd kind of had them in mind for a long time as someone to submit a book to in the future um, for possible publication. And so I I made a Facebook post saying like, what press do you think would be interested in um, publishing a book like this? And Eve Connell, who's now my editor at University of Hell, um, wrote to me and said, this, we would love to take this book, but I'd like to talk with you about possibly submitting it to um, women's presses, like feminist women run presses um, instead. And so I wrote back and said, I appreciate that, (laughs) but it's not just a woman's issue for me. It's it's like a queer issue. It's um, an issue related to men as well, because you know we had a lot of men coming forward with stories of assault, Um, and so it was important to me that I didn't align myself too much with like a mainstream feminist movement that was very much for women. Um, I felt like these things were a little bit more complicated than that. And, and she was happy to hear that. And so then we started moving forward with actually publishing the book together.
0: That's so cool that it came together in that way. Um, I, going back to the the going, the fact that it went viral because it started out as this kind of personal endeavor and catharsis, and then all of a sudden you're getting a lot of voices thrown at you. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that experience of suddenly being a part of of this much wider discussion and what you learned from that experience?
1: Oh, gosh, I could write an entire book um, (laughs) in response to that question because it was so amazingly complicated and at times thrilling and at other times terrifying. And um, I ended up turning down a large press, actually, um, who wanted to publish the book. And it was a really... Tense, difficult decision for me, but again, it tied back to this idea of not wanting to be part of this mainstream, largely white Me Too movement um, that I felt was excluding a lot of voices um, that were not like, you know, Alyssa Milano and um, not that I have anything against any of these people, it was just that the focus was so much on these very well-known celebrities and issues like the abuse of, um, uh, women of color who work in hotel, uh, facilities, for example, like those things weren't really getting discussed, um, on a large scale. It was all, you know, these very wealthy, famous women who were coming forward and being heard And I just I felt like I didn't really need to add anything to that movement. Um, And so it was it was really complicated for me. Uh, Like you say, it's a very personal exercise and it was personally cathartic, but I was also dealing with statements relating to the trauma of other people. And and so there was a part of me, too, that felt like I don't really need to propel my career on, like, basically on the backs of people who've been abused. It just felt, it felt wrong to me to, um, to use that as an opportunity to become, you know, some big name. Um, it was really uncomfortable. The whole thing was extremely uncomfortable and it felt very, um it, you know, I, I actually did speak with a literary agent about the book at one point because people were reaching out to me constantly saying like, oh, I have this agent friend or my agent wants to talk to you. So, you know, my agent saw your Instagram feed and wants to talk about, you know, publish, pub- ah possibly reaching out to large presses and doing all this stuff. And, and when I talked to an agent, what they said to me was, you know, it's a, it's a highly marketable project. Um, it's it's something that presses would be interested in because it would make them a lot of money uh, because it went viral. And and it just, it made me really uncomfortable uh, to be perfectly honest. Like if, if I had gone viral with something that was less traumatic um, and just less uh, personal as well, it, I think um, I would have felt differently about it. Uh, and I've had a few people who work in other realms of art, who um, think I'm totally nuts for making the decisions that I made. And, um, you know, when I talk to them about it, I, I have to remind them like, look, you're a landscape painter, you know, or you paint portraits or like, you're putting out work that's like really beautiful and lovely. And if that work went viral and you got all these opportunities, I, there wouldn't be the personal emotional cost associated with that work going viral and getting really well known and, um, like it would it would make perfect sense to go with it you know in that situation for me i was having panic attacks like constantly i was really not handling it very well because of the nature of the the subject matter and um so i just i thought you know for the sake of my own mental health and well-being i'm not going to go that route with it. I wanted to go with a small press that I felt really honored the work and would also let me write an introduction where I could be as queer, um, and honest about myself and where I'm coming from as possible. Um, you know, right. I wouldn't feel like pressured to toe a line, um, in order to sell the book. So all of that stuff was going on. And then it was just like, I went viral when I was at work and I was sitting at my desk, in my office and my phone was sitting there. And at that point in my life, <laughs> I had notifications turned on for like all of my social media apps, because I wasn't getting bombarded with a lot of messages or, or comments or anything like that. So that experience changed the way that I interact with social media on my phone, because I my phone was my, my screen would light up every second of the day. It was just a constant stream of retweets and response tweets and messages and um, comments and, and just, it was nonstop. I mean, my phone was constantly lit up and it was freaking me out. (laughs) And then I got messages from people like with screenshots of their Twitter homepage that had my picture, my picture on it. And some headline about like, this poet is, you know, erasing the bullshit in celebrity apologies. And and then it would, my friend would say, you're, you're trending on Twitter. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like, how could I be trending on? Yeah, it was weird. Um, it was totally mind blowing. I couldn't focus for a lot of the day. I actually broke down in tears uh, out of just like being overwhelmed. Um, and a coworker came over to my desk and like with a box of tissues, not knowing why I was crying. And, um, she was, (laughs) she, she's in her sixties and is just like, so not into social media. And so she comes to my desk and she, she says, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I said, I went viral. Um, and I just, I just kept talking about going viral and she's like, are you sick? (laughs) <laughs> she was like, Do you need to go to the hospital? I was like, No. And, and so I started laughing. So I'm laughing and crying. And then I explained to her, like, what going viral means on social media. And she was like, Oh, well, that's wonderful. You know, and so she was really supportive and thought it was great. And I was like, it's not great. This is horrible. (laughs) And so it was just for me, I'm, I'm extremely introverted. And I'm like, I really get like sensory overload, you know, I get really overstimulated. And so for me, it was just like, I need to go live in a cave now because I can't deal with this. Um, but I just, I turned off notifications on my phone and just made sure that I wasn't getting sucked into everything too much. It was hard. I mean, there were, I got comments from men mostly telling me to kill myself Um you know, making comments about what I look like. Of course, it's like all the things that men love to say <laughs> to to people who aren't men. You know, um, and I got one guy telling me that erasure poetry isn't really poetry; it's just an exercise for people who don't know how to write poetry or can't write poetry. And um, and that was the only sort of trollish comment that I responded to out of all of the messages and comments I received. And what I said to that person was um, there are many ways to write poetry and I'm glad that not one single person gets to define it for the rest of us. Um, Cause I just felt like it was important to point that out. Like, you know, visual poetry is poetry. Erasure poetry is poetry. There are certain films that I watch where I'm like, this isn't really even a film it's a poem in 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 film form. And so I, I think it's important to like point those things out and encourage people to think of poetry as being something other than, you know, a sonnet or even a free form kind of thing. Like it can be a visual experience. Um, Yeah. That was my long
0: story. (laughs) Well, um, I was also wondering um, in terms of dealing with like that kind of like overwhelming everything that was going on during that period like uh and dealing with any anxiety and intense emotions that came out of it like do you have any like uh a toolbox that you draw on to kind of like deal uh with that kind of thing that like melt might help other people who are feeling overwhelmed and in any kind of similar situations like with anxiety in general or yeah yeah just kind of like because I my sister deals with anxiety too and and she we always refer to it as a toolbox and and when she's having a bad day and I'm like well you've got your toolbox you can anchor yourself in the present and that kind of thing and I'm 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 just wondering if you have your own toolbox to draw oh gosh yes (laughs) (laughs) another book that I could write
1: um Yeah, I have a literal box next to my bed, actually, that's full of like herbal remedies and a little book that says who to call when shit gets real. (laughs) (laughs) And so if I'm like, if I have all my tools at hand, and none of them are working, and I just really need to talk to somebody, I've got a list of people and their numbers so I can call them. Because sometimes, you know, we look at our phones, we're like, who the fuck am I supposed to call and get like into crisis mode and you can't think straight about like what you're supposed to do with this device, you know? Um, and so I wrote down the people that I really feel connected to and who I've even spoken to and asked, like, can I add you to my shit gets real book? And, and they're like, yeah, totally. So I've got just a handful of people in there that I can call if, if I really need to talk to somebody, um, but other than that's usually like last resort because I am so introverted. I usually try to handle things on my own. Um, so I have I've worked for herbalists like the whole time that I've lived in Taos. And so I've learned a lot about various herbal remedies. Um, so to maintain a pretty stable baseline, because my baseline normally is very anxious. Um, it, I, I take a couple things like there's a an herbal remedy called 5-HTP that works with serotonin in the brain. And so it's, it's kind of like a, a more natural version of Zoloft, which I was on for a long time. Um, and so I take that every day just, you know, for maintenance. <laughs> and then there's another uh, remedy called GABA, and there's a brand called GABA Calm that um is more for like acute anxiety panic attack kind of episodes and I always have that on hand and it's like a little lozenge that dissolves in your mouth and usually if I take one of those within 20 minutes like if I'm really panicking I feel a little bit better um and I don't really I I probably take that like a couple times a year um because I've gotten to a point now where I don't really have intense panic attacks just out of the blue so much. Um, Usually it's in response to something like really huge. Um, But I also, I'm a huge fan of kava. Like kava tea to me is an amazing thing. And I'll usually like double bag it, you know, (laughs) like like, a cup with two bags of kava tea. And that really relaxes me. And hot baths, that's like another thing that I do. I take a hot bath several times a week and I use essential oils. Um, Yeah, I'm like the queen of – my boyfriend says like, you sure know how to live because he thinks that I'm being like really luxurious. And I'm like, you don't understand. I need these things. (laughs) Like like, this isn't really me like indulging. It's me trying to stay sane. So – Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely like an enormous privilege to have all these things available to me and I'm really happy that I do. Um, but yeah, those are things that I rely on herbal remedies, essential oils, baths. Um, yeah. And also knowing what makes me feel really anxious. So, um, some of it is just like knowing what TV shows not to watch or what movies to avoid. Um, and sort of encouraging more gentle programming, you know, when I'm, when I'm watching something to make sure that I'm not putting myself into an anxious state.
0: Yeah, I can totally understand that. Yeah. Um, so you, coming back to the book, and, and it is a real book in the world now. It's both available in both hardback and print. And um, how I, how, how has, like, engaging with these poems different now that they're in a collected form for you? And, like, what kind of are you hoping that this collection, now that it's available, will achieve?
1: It's different for me in book form because it's more organized now, which is great. Like, before it was just these erasures that were floating around. And um, people knew that they were erasures of... Um, Apology statements, but I put a lot of effort into organizing the book in a way that I felt would give some context to the different kinds of apologies, and so the the different sort of tropes that appear in these apologies, like the idea that if someone doesn't say no, that it means yes. So you know, the absence of a no, that um, that means automatic consent and that's a huge problem. Um, and you know, the idea that, that women would apologize for men as well, um, and defend men, uh, against people who are accusing them of things without even taking the time to consider, maybe there's some truth to that. You don't have to immediately come to the defense of someone just because they're your friend. Um, And so I felt like organizing them in a way that gives context to the different ways in which people speak about these things and how they're so common. I mean, the ideas are really repeated again and again and again. And for me, it was important not to name the individual perpetrators in the book. Um, Their names are attached to the erasures on the Internet. But in the book, I didn't want to do that because I felt like if you do that and you're you're pointing at individual people, what you're saying is this is an in, this is an example of a bad person. This is, you know, there's a tendency in our culture to, you know, with call out culture to point at people and sort of label them the bad ones and ostracize them and then the rest of us get absolved. And I didn't really want to contribute to that. I thought it was more important to say these are things that we all have to address in ourselves and to, um, acknowledge in each other and try to work through and, um, without saying, okay, this guy's good. This guy's bad. Cause we, we all, everyone has the ability to think in these ways and it's larger than just one person, you know, being a bad person who needs to be removed. Um, and so that's, kind of partly where the title comes from too, All This Can Be Yours relates to a statement that uh Jeremy Piven allegedly made when he um his accuser said that he uh exposed himself to her at a party and said that all this can be yours, which I thought was hilarious in just the the assumption that like that body part is like such a wonderful thing you know <laughs> like, like all of this you know like never seen one of these before have you but like also the idea that like it all of this being um you know rape culture and uh, misogyny and abuse it is ours it belongs to everyone and it isn't a, a, just a matter of pointing out who the bad guys are and getting rid of them so that the rest of us can be okay. Like it's, it exists in all of us. So that's kind of what I'm hoping um, the book will do in the world uh, in its own small way is remind people that there isn't really an easy way to tell like, okay, this guy's a monster. This guy's good. It's monstrous tendencies that are, Encouraged in our culture that have to be, you know, dealt with, not just individual people and in their actions.
0: As these poems are part kind of like this co- larger conversation and, and this Me Too movement and the, having come out of that, um, I'm also wondering like, what, what do you think the role of poetry and art in general has in such movements? Like, do you believe that poetry has the power to contribute to changing the world?
1: Um, I think it has the power to contribute to conversations about how that change can happen. That's something that I feel very strongly about with art, that it needs to be uh, for me. And, um, And I think for a lot of people, a form of activism and most of my work you know, my traditional poetry as well has, has often been about these same issues of um, abuse and trauma and grief um, and pointing to things that are not okay. Do I think that poetry itself and the act of writing poems can substitute for like action, getting involved in the community? Not really. I, I think that like we talked about earlier with the anxiety toolbox, I feel like there's also an activism toolbox and uh, poetry and art are definitely pieces of, of, um, they can be tools in that toolbox. But I think that, um, it's a little dangerous to think that you can write poems and change the world through your poems. Um, I think it's tempting and I do, I do think that it's very powerful. I think art is powerful. I think poetry is very powerful, but I, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it being like the only thing that, um, someone does in the world as activism. Um, I, that's something that I think about a lot though. <laughs> and, uh, my opinion might be different tomorrow.
0: <laughs> so, um, Another question that came to by to mind regarding um, erasure poetry itself, and uh, which is transformational in terms of the way it deals with the source text, um, and I'm wondering, um, do you feel that the the process of writing this book and and going through what you through went through with it, and finally having the book uh, in the world has transformed you as a poet?
1: Um, yes, and not just as a poet, but as a person, um I have spent a lot of time in my life being very angry and um you know participating in things that I think are actually very damaging because of that anger, and so like participating in things like call out culture and because we're all i feel like a lot of artists are um at least the ones that i know are dealing with very personal trauma in their work and um to be in a space with other artists who are also working you know in similar areas we're often triggering each other with our work and um It can be easy to develop a sort of reactionary stance to the people in your own community. And so I feel like I've witnessed a lot of really damaging um, aspects of sort of call-out culture in the art community, and I've also been a part of it. And while I do believe that, some forms of calling out are definitely vital. Um, I feel like sometimes it goes a little too far and people get attacked for things that are actually not that serious. Um, And so I feel like for me doing the erasures was, um, I was so angry when I did them and I spent so much time on them, just exhausting myself and exhausting the anger in me about a lot of these things that I feel like I was able to move through a lot of that um, in a way where I'm able now to recognize, you know, the damage of certain things and um, and recognize the trauma and the anger of other people without getting so swept up in what I think has been like somewhat damaging to myself levels of anger (laughs) about things that, um, you know, happened in the past to me or to other people, things that I see happening in the world where um, it makes a lot of sense to get really angry. Um, And I still, you know, I still get angry about things, uh, but I'm not like consumed with rage. I feel like I in the way that I used to be and I feel like the erasure is actually, Really have a lot to do with that, where anger just isn't my driving force anymore um it's there, but I feel like at a healthier level,
0: yeah, so uh <laughs> that is, sometimes my transitions aren't smooth <laughs> uh, <mostly. laughs> um but as a follow up to your book all this. Can be yours. You're also editing an mythology of erasure,s called Erase the Patriarchy, and I would love if you would talk a little bit about that, and um, and the process of switching to um, uh, talking about using erasure,s yourself to talk about these issues, and then switching to sharing and promoting the voices of others.
1: I have been so incredibly pleased to um, witness and be a part of other people creating erasures. Um, What has been so amazing for me is um, receiving submissions from people from all over the world who are calling attention to things in their work um that are happening in their own countries and their own governments and in their own celebrity culture and that to me is really amazing that um cuz because you know the mainstream me too movement it was very focused on hollywood in the US and um not so much on individual people grappling with things around the world. And, and of course that's how it happened because that's just, you know, that's what gets the most attention in our culture. But I've received, you know, submissions from people uh, from all over the place and uh, calling attention to, you know, famous photographers and members of parliament and um, all, you know, just all kinds of stuff and using all different medium. Uh, media as well. So, you know, I've gotten like embroidery. Um, I've gotten erasures where people are using the earth. You know, they're putting stuff on the ground and erasing it with dirt and rocks and stuff. And um, people who are uh, using photography. And it's just like the creativity involved in the erasures that I've received has been so impressive. And I feel really makes mine look bad <laughs> in comparison. I always feel like like my erasures got so much attention, but they were so sloppy. And they're like, I I've um, I received a lot of messages from teachers who used them in class. And um, they've sent me comments from their students. And one of the students uh, said, the erasures aren't pretty at all. <laughs> but it really works, considering what the subject matter is. And, and for a second there, I was like, "Oh, man, my erasures are so ugly, you know? but um, but I mean, they were. I made them in a rush because I was mad. And I feel like the the people who are submitting things to me for erase the patriarchy, you know, they've they've had a lot more time to uh, create their work. And they've really like, they've just really amazed me with what they've been doing and the level of effort and talent um, that has gone into it, I think is incredible. And I'm just really looking
0: forward to sharing them with, with everyone else. That just sounds so stunning. And I am so looking forward to grabbing a copy of that as soon as it's available, because it sounds amazing. Um. So other than the anthology, what are you working on now? Like, what are you hoping to create in the future?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, Right now, I am working on developing an erasure workshop, which will be given in a couple different places pretty soon. Um, I'm going to the New Orleans Poetry Festival in April, and I'm teaching Erasure as Conversation, um, as a workshop there. And, um, which should be fun. Uh, cause I want to, I want to approach erasure with people from a multitude of different angles, like not just the, I'm mad at you and I want to remove your words kind of thing, but also the, how can you do it in a reverent way or in a dreamlike way or using various materials. And I'm really excited to bring, um, the erase the patriarchy some of those submissions into that workshop too to show people just like the vast array of possibilities that exist for erasure um so i'm working on that and i'm, I'm doing that same workshop or an iteration of it here in taos when i get back from the poetry festival as part of um there's a literary organization in taos called somos and um, I'm reading for them in April, and also doing an erasure workshop there too. So right now, I'm I'm really focusing more on um, doing workshops and and uh, sort of sharing uh, whatever I can about what I know about erasure and what I enjoy about it. Um, and then with Dream Pop, I'm publishing three chapbooks of poetry. By three really amazing poets, uh, with Carleen Tibbets through uh, through that, that small press. It's the first set of chapbooks that um, we will publish through them. And then um, I just sent sent out a box full of eight of the original erasures to an organization in San Francisco called t Roots. They're doing an exhibition in March called empowerment versus exploitation. And it's a really amazing show um, of visual arts. And then they have a couple other associated poetry events that are occurring um, as part of the event as well. And that's taking place in Oakland at, um, I believe it's Warehouse 416 um, and on March 1st. And I won't be there for that, but I did send them um, a bunch of erasures to, to show and then as well as um, some erasure prints that are for sale. So really high quality print versions of the erasures and um, some copies of the book will be there in hardcover and paperback as well. Um, as far as writing new material, I'm sort of uh, working on a memoir at the moment, Um I'm sure you've you've like seen on my social media feeds. My father passed away um, a, almost a year ago, and I've been doing a lot of writing, sort of about our relationship. And a lot of it is just for me, but I as I keep going with it, it seems like there might be a memoir
0: in there somewhere. And so um, that's sort of a project that I'm working on right now. To sort of wrap things up. would you like to share something you're reading or some sort of media that you're loving or finding inspiring right now?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, well, going back to the anxiety toolbox, I guess, not to be like so basic, but, um, I, I binge watched, uh, Marie Kondo's tidying up show.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I am like so into it, and I've honestly I just bought my first house and I moved from uh, my boyfriend's place into the new place. and um, as I was packing up all my stuff, i was i I got rid of like eighty percent of my clothing um and it it felt amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just, right now I'm trying to immerse myself in sort of like, I my tendency uh, before um, the erasures and before my dad passed away, I immersed myself in a lot of like really dark psychological stuff. And I'm finding that that just doesn't like work for me so much right now. And maybe that'll change in a couple of years, but I'm trying to uh, surround myself with things that just make me—you f- know—it's—it's it's so silly. I feel really funny talking about it, but you know, like the spark joy thing really speaks to me right now. And um, so I'm, yeah, I'm trying to—I call it gentle programming. You know, things that are supportive um, of where I'm trying to be right now emotionally. And so Marie Kondo is like where it's at. (laughs) I've like sort of rebelled against her like years ago when her book first came out, I was dating someone who was super into it. And so because I was just such a contrarian back then, I was like, no, no, I'm not doing this. And, um, I just, I was being really stupid. Um, and now that I've binge watched the show, which was like the most fun thing ever, I went back to the book, which I never read, um, because I was a snob. And <laughs> and <then laughs> now I'm reading that and I'm just really enjoying it and I'm waiting I'm waiting for the next season of tidying up to
0: to appear. <laughs> well. I love that answer. It (laughs) delights me. And and I am also waiting for the next season to appear because that show delights me as well and just makes me so joyful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it also like having just like bought my first house, the whole greeting the house thing makes so much sense. Like honoring the state that we live in and like thinking of it as an entity that supports you in your life, I feel is really powerful for anyone absolutely yeah yeah so you own a home, now so,
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah thank you so much yeah um, this has been a wonderful conversation and and I really appreciate your being on the show thank you I appreciate you inviting me this is new books and poetry a podcast of the new books network thank you everybody for listening and I hope you all have a wonderful day